Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have and continue to pour out upon us through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. We pray, O oh God, this morning that your grace would be operative in our hearts, that we might behold your glory in the face of Christ as we engage the word of God this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would not leave us unchanged, but that we might be changed, that you would conform us into the very image of our creator, into the image of Christ, that you would lead us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we might love our neighbor as ourself. Father, we pray now that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we're back in the book of Psalms this morning. I've been enjoying listening to the sermons that have been coming through Embassy Church in the book of Psalms. It has been a blessing. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Psalm 17. And as we look into Psalm 17 this morning, I think that we need to do so with certain convictions held before us. And as we think about these convictions that we come to the book of Psalms and to the scriptures in general with, uh, we need to keep some things in mind. So specifically to the Psalms, when we come to the Psalms, we, got, we have to recognize that these songs that are before us, while they are penned by the hands of people, they are breathed out by God himself, which is simply to say that we come to the Psalms understanding that they are inspired by God himself. And that these songs, while being composed and written before the coming of Christ, are, along with the entire Old Testament, a part of the Christian scriptures. That is to say, our scriptures. And as a part of the Christian scriptures, we believe that the Psalms and the rest of the Bible, and the rest of the Old Testament specifically, bear witness primarily to Jesus Christ. And that the Psalms and the entire Old Testament must be read, understood, and received as such, as a witness to Jesus Christ. And so that sets the stage for where we're going today. So now I'm going to read through Psalm 17. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, we are going to be in Psalm 17. I don't know if we have the same pew Bibles up here. No? Not the Bible? Okay. Well then, my page number won't help you at all. All right. Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, 
Confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the word of God. As we jump into Psalm 17 this morning, uh, our big idea or, or the thing that we are going to focus on this morning is simply this, that David's life and his relationship with God, as we see demonstrated now in this prayerful song, both looks forward to and is ultimately dependent upon Jesus himself. David's life And his relationship with God both looks forward to and is dependent upon Jesus Christ himself. So first, let's think about verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, as we just heard, we have here a plea for vindication from David. And as we think through this first section of Psalm 17, we are going to see that David's relationship with God looks forward to, as we just said, and is ultimately dependent on Jesus, even though, even though David dies hundreds of years before Jesus comes and takes on flesh, lives and dies for us. So what's going on here in the psalm? Well, David is appealing to the Lord for vindication from his enemies. Now, with all of the reading commentaries and stuff that I did, nobody's really sure of what's going on here, what the historical situation is that David finds himself in, except that time and time again, David found himself in similar situations to this, where there is enemies out to get David, they are belittling him, they are seeking his life. And so David here beseeches God to render a favorable judgment to David over his enemies and what's interesting is David does it based on his devotion to the Lord he begins hear a just cause O Lord attend to my cry give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit and then David from your presence let my vindication come and I really feel like this is at the heart of this first section this phrase let your eyes behold the right now As we hear in this, God has tried David's heart. He has visited him by night. He has tested him. And David says, has found nothing. And by nothing, we can't hear sinless perfection. I think what David has in mind is that God has tested him. God has visited David by night. And he has found nothing in David that would place David in the category of his enemies, which is far from the Lord, not seeking the Lord, not following the Lord. In verse 4, David tells us that with regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. Now, we might think, okay, well, that's great. David doesn't seem like a bully, but think about who David is. Whether at this point he is the commander of the armies of Israel under Saul the king or is the king himself, in both of these contexts, it would have been extremely tempting for David to embrace a lifestyle of violence, even outside of the confines of war. It was the norm for earthly rulers to do so. And it would have been very easy for the commander or king to be brutal outside of the confines of war. 
to integrate the means of violence into every aspect of his life to benefit himself. But David says, according to the ways of the Lord, he was unwilling to do that. He was unwilling to take part of what would have been for kings and commanders a part of the social convention where violence would have been a way that you would build up your own strength, your own wealth, and your own power. But David has purposefully chosen, in devotion to the Lord, to avoid such a lifestyle. Now at this point, I feel like we should say, as we think about the story of David, we can think of some glaring exceptions to this. I think of Uriah the Hittite and how David has him killed in battle for his own personal benefit, which will lead us into a further meditation in just a minute. But as we think about what's going on here in Psalm 17, it is David's devotion to the Lord his God that forms the foundation of his prayer to God, of his plea to God. It is a life of devotion and steadfast commitment to the Lord, to his will and to his ways that leads David to have the boldness to say to God, let your eyes behold the right. Now, David's devotion and steadfast commitment to the Lord are admirable and they are commendable. It is a noble thing, but it got me thinking, how are we supposed to think about this and understand this plea of David to the Lord when he says, Lord, let your eyes behold the right. When we know that David's righteousness is far from perfect and that his own life is beset with sin, as scripture clearly testifies to, David's devotion and righteousness, like all of ours, is imperfect at best. It wavers and it deals with that remaining corruption of sin within us. So how do we reconcile this prayer of David? Because as devout as it may be, and as devout as David may be, this prayer and David are still imperfect and dealing with sin. And so how do we reconcile this prayer of David with those words of Habakkuk that we may be familiar with, where Habakkuk, speaking of the Lord, says this, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. So how is it that a holy and just God who is of purer eyes than to even look on evil, Habakkuk says, you can't even look on evil, you are so holy and pure. How is it that God can then vindicate any sinner and come to their defense? And the answer simply is this, Jesus Christ. And so we read already from Romans chapter 4, but in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, we hear the Apostle Paul say this, that God, in his divine forbearance, had passed over the sins formerly committed or previously committed, speaking about the sins of the Old Testament saints. And Paul continues, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, which means this. That God did not punish the sins of the Old Testament believers as they deserved. 
And we know, the author of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats was never able to atone for their sins. And yet God, even though Christ had not come, even though these believers had died without their sins fully atoned for yet in history, God does not punish their sins as they deserve. Why? Well, God passed over their sins. That is, he didn't punish them as they deserved because it says that he wanted to demonstrate his righteousness in and through Jesus. And God was going to demonstrate his righteousness and justice in and through Jesus, not only in a way that would rightfully deal with sin, but God was going to demonstrate his righteousness in a way that it would allow sinners to also be justified before God. So he passes over the sins of David and all of the Old Testament saints, knowing knowing what Jesus would do. As, as the, the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan, God is able to then pass over the sins of the Old Testament saints so that he might not only be just, righteous, but the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then this is why we had Romans chapter 4 read in verses 4 through 6. This is what we heard. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then notice who the example is. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And so in Romans chapter 4, David is here held up as a testimony, as a, an example of faith. And it is by virtue of David's faith in God as the justifier of the ungodly, even though Jesus has not yet come, it is David's faith in God that allows God to then impute the righteousness of Jesus even to David before he has come. David's sins are atoned for by means of the death of Jesus Christ on his behalf, even though Jesus has not yet taken on flesh. This is the only way to make sense of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3, where he's talking about justification by faith, where we are imputed the righteousness of Christ to ourselves. Though we are sinners, our faith then allows God to impute Christ's righteousness to us. And then he moves on in chapter 4 to hold up Abraham and David as examples of this faith. And it's for that reason that God was <clears throat> excuse me, able to pass over the sins previously committed. Now, what does that have to do with Psalm 17? David can cry out to God based on his dedication to the Lord over against that of his enemies and confidently expect the Lord to be on his side because as a believer in the God who justifies the ungodly, David's sins are dealt with through the future work on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so David has had that barrier between him and God removed, his sins, righteousness of Christ imputed to him, and his sins imputed to Christ on the cross. So David then can come boldly before the Lord, and he can come to God, and he can ask God based on his devotion. Now, what is David's devotion? other than the outworking of his faith. Because if it's not the outworking of his faith, then it is a works and it is a wage that cannot be earned. But David's devotion, and this is true of any of us, our devotion to the Lord is nothing more than the outworking of our faith. 
It is the outflow of a heart that believes in the God who would justify ungodly sinners, not by anything that we have done, but by the merit of Christ alone. And that kind of faith, if it doesn't compel us to devotion to God, is not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. Now, David's deeds, as we read through Psalm 17, are in one sense, in comparison to that of his opponents and his enemies, they are right. He is the one, in some sense, who can say, let your eyes behold the right. But in order for God to behold the right of David's actions, he must first and always behold the right of the greater David's actions, our Lord Jesus Christ. If not for the perfection of Christ, then David has no grounds to come before the Lord like this. Only Jesus has lips that were totally free from deceit. Only the Savior could be totally vindicated from God's presence. Only Christ has been tried and tested in every way and maintained perfect devotion and righteousness. Only Jesus has a mouth that has never transgressed against the Lord his God. And how could it? He is himself the eternal word of God. You see, Jesus, as our Prince of Peace, would not take the ways of violent men, even though that ultimately led to his violent death. Instead, he held fast to the paths of his Father, and he did so for our redemption. And so what we see here is that David's devotion to the Lord and his boldness to come before the throne of grace based on that devotion ultimately points ahead to the truest, purest devotion that we could ever see, which is that of Jesus Christ. And it is ultimately founded on the person and work of Christ who has paid for all sins of all who will believe in him. And so it not only looks forward to Christ, but it is founded on Christ. David's imperfect devotion is able to be brought before God because if sins have been removed through the work of Christ and the barrier between him and God is gone. Now, I just thought that that was interesting in the sense that how much more for us, knowing the fuller picture of Christ, how much more should we, resting in the finished work of Christ, have boldness to come before our God? And how much more should our faith on this side of the cross, lead us to an even more steadfast devotion to the Lord our God. Now, as we move on to the next section in verses 6 through 12, we're going to see here that God himself is a place of refuge from the troubles of this life. God himself is our refuge. Now, this section, along with the next one, are going to really reveal, I think, how David's life and relationship looks forward to that of Jesus. David's life and relationship with God looks forward to that of Jesus. Now, as we think about this, we're going to see in this section what I, what I think are just some beautiful statements here in verses 6 through 12. And what we're going to see here is the relational heart of David's and what I think is all true faith. All true faith. At, at the heart of our faith is a relationship. It, it, it's probably been overplayed, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and so I don't, I don't know if I like that language only because sometimes it seems a little sentimental. But what we're talking about here 
is the fact that when we come to God, we don't simply come to a genie in a bottle to help us in the situation that we're in, as if the, the greatest benefit of God is that he can change our circumstances to make things easier here. The beauty of the gospel is, and then we're going to see this through Jesus Christ, when we come to God, we can come to God, that he is the glory and the joy of everything that we long for. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, in verses 9 through 12, David's going to describe the situation that he finds himself in. Listen to this. He asks God to deliver him from the wicked who do me violence, in verse 9, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity, and with their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps, and they have set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. So whatever is going on with David, it is a, a, a difficult, a scary situation where his life is being threatened, and those that are coming after him, these violent people who the psalmist here, who David himself describes as being like a lion ready to devour. In the midst of all of that, what we're going to see is that David's heart's cry is not primarily to be delivered from his circumstances, but to be delivered into the presence of God. Verse 2, let's go back to verse 2. From your presence, he says, let my vindication come. And what we're going to see now in verses 6, 7, and 8 is that David's desire is not simply to be delivered from his situation, but to be delivered primarily into the presence of God. Verse 6, I call upon you, for you will answer me. Incline your ear to hear me, hear my words wondrously show your steadfast love and then here it is O savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand david's vindication will come as god guards or keeps watch over david as the apple of his eye think about the the intimate way that the relationship between david and his god is described david can come to god and say keep me as the apple of your eye that this relationship with God is such that David feels confident to come to him and say, God, what I, what I need from you is I need you to just gaze at me as that which you delight in. Keep me as the apple of your eye. And this is how David views that his vindication will come from God. Now, I think this means that. That while vindication from God could result in deliverance from a desperate situation. It could. Vindication from God could absolutely result in deliverance from some temporal situation that is hard. This tells us, though, that vindication from God is first and most importantly deliverance into his presence. Because, guys, if we can find that, if we can find that communion with God, if we can find ourselves in the presence of God, then we will be able to withstand anything that this life brings against us. David knew that. David knew that what he needed more than these guys to drop dead in a moment, which would have been really helpful for him, was he needed to be in the very presence of God himself. He needed to be in the presence of him for whom David's soul was created. In other words, this is no simple transactional plea from David. 
where David would maybe come to God and say, listen, God, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to honor you, and I'll be devoted to you if you will deliver me from this situation. If you do this, God, if you give me this deliverance, then I will give you that, my devotion. It's not that at all. This is a plea from someone who understands the saving presence of God as what is most needed. To be in the presence of God is what is most needed. See, true deliverance in this life is not found in an escape from any given situation, no matter how bad it is. True deliverance, true salvation in this life right now is found in the deliverance into the presence of God himself. Now, there is a day coming when full and final salvation will bring deliverance from all the broken situations of this life. That day is coming. And we will have full and complete, unhindered access to the presence of God. And that access to the presence of God is what will swallow up every bit of the brokenness in, the, in this world. But until that day comes, as we are here struggling through the ups and downs of this life, we need to realize what David has realized here. That deliverance for us, salvation for us, is to be delivered into God's presence, not primarily out of the hardships of this life. Now David can make this plea to God that he would be sheltered in the shadow of God's wings based on the character of God. In verse 6 we hear that God is a personal God who hears the prayers of his people. Guys, when you pray, by virtue of your faith in Christ, our God and Father, the almighty creator of the earth, hears you. He knows what you're praying even before you pray. He knows exactly what you need before you ask. And he always answers your prayer in the way that you would want them answered if you knew everything that he did. He is a loving and kind heavenly father. God is gracious, verse 7, and maintains his steadfast love towards his people. Again, in verse 7, we hear that he is the merciful savior of those who seek refuge in him. Now, David understands God as one who calls his people into an intimate relationship with himself. I think so much of what we can get caught up with, and, and, and maybe not this church, maybe not us, I, I don't know. I know I struggle with it at times, is this transactional relationship with God. Where, God, we just want this from you, we need this from you, and so we think that if our devotion to you picks up, then we might get more of this. But our devotional life should pick up that we might get more of him. Now, David understands that God, in spite of all of our sin, shame, and brokenness, desires to be intimately acquainted with all the ways of his people. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. David understood this about God as one who was a member of the Old Covenant. Which means, as the Apostle Paul tells us, that David understood these truths about God in, in types, in shadows, not fully as we have had revealed to us in Christ. Now David's faith in God united him to the person and work of Jesus even before Christ came, but David could not understand the depths of God's grace and mercy like those of us who are a part of the new covenant in Christ's blood. We're told that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. He has revealed himself 
most fully in and through the person and work of Jesus. And so what David could only see as concealed in the shadows of the Old Testament, we can now see in the reality of the New Testament. So what do I mean? Well, think about this. David pleaded with God to incline his ear to him and to hear his words. But we hear Jesus say in John eleven forty two 42 to the Father, I knew that you always hear me. David says, God, listen to me, hear my prayer. But Jesus says, Father, I know that you always hear me. David appealed to God to show his steadfast, loyal love as the Savior of those who seek refuge at his right hand. And Jesus, though, Jesus is the very embodiment of God's steadfast and loyal love and is himself seated at the right hand of the Father. David asked God, God, keep me as the apple of your eye. But Jesus is and always has been the perfect apple of God's eye. This is why at the baptism of Jesus, we hear the thundering voice of the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What about this? David seeks to be hidden in the shadow of God's wings. But Jesus, scriptures tell us, is the only begotten God who has existed forever in the bosom of the Father. Guys, this is the Christ that we are united to by faith. This is the Christ that has given us unfettered access to the Father and everything, everything that David was crying out to the Lord for, all of this personal, intimate relationship with God, Jesus has, has always had. But now, since he has taken on flesh, been born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under a law. He has taken our humanity with all of its brokenness, and he has suffered the wrath of God on the cross for our sin. And he has taken this humanity, and he has died to death, and he has conquered death in his resurrection victory, and he has raised up humanity now. Forever, forever united together with God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of God, so that not only does Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the eternal word, have access to the Father in these ways, but he has taken humanity with him, so that if we will, by faith, trust Christ as the wrath-bearing sacrifice of God, believe that God raised him from the dead, then we too as his kinsmen, have that kind of access to the Father. And that everything David longed for, we have been freely given by God in grace through Jesus. But here's the thing. We'll only take advantage of this unspeakably rich blessing if we understand the presence of God as our greatest good. You see, if we miss that, if we miss the fact that God himself is what our souls were created for and that our greatest good and our ultimate deliverance is not from anything here primarily, but to him who is there, if we miss that, then we won't take advantage of this. If we miss that, then we will probably come to God in this transactional way. We will simply be seeking changed situations here. 
We will probably come to God and with the mindset of, God, if you can give me this or do this for me, then I will do that. And the reality is, is that God is gracious. God is so gracious. He often does that with our, our fledgling faith that we're working through. And listen, I'm a pastor, and I study the Bible all the time. And when I say our fledgling faith, I mean mine too. I believe God help my unbelief. But if we can get to this point where we realize that, yes, God is gracious, and he will deal with us now according to our problems here, and he is often very gracious to help us with those, but that he has given us so much more, infinitely more, with access through Christ into his very presence so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. And now notice that. It doesn't talk about how we pray. It says that in our time of need, we can come into his presence. Now, yes, we lay our supplications at God, but the glory of the gospel is that we can now come to God as Father into his presence. Jesus has given us this full and unfettered access to God. We need to, friends, like Asaph in Psalm 73, be able to say this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Through the finished work of our Savior Jesus Christ, we are able to say that God himself, the creator of all things, the only one who is pure and true good, pure and true righteousness and love and joy and everything that we long for, he is our portion forever. Which leads us to our last short and final point. In verses 13 through 15, we see here, I think, what we might describe as the beatific vision versus the earthly vision. And if you don't know what that means, it'll work itself out in just a minute. You see, this last section here is the climax of David's heartfelt prayer for God's presence as his salvation and hope. Look at what he says in verses 13, 14, and 15. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. And then verse 16, which is the climax of it all, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Now what's interesting about this section, I think, is that it reveals to us that placing our ultimate hope and seeking our satisfaction in anything in this temporal life, and when I say anything, I mean here, we're talk there's, he's talking about children, which are some of the greatest gifts that God can give. They are good gifts. They are a blessing. But when we place our hope and our ultimate satisfaction in anything in this life, it is a disordering of the heart, and it will lead to ruin. Put differently, there is nothing in this world that is capable of satisfying your soul. That is a position that belongs to God and God alone. Now, David's enemies here are characterized by their, not love, but satisfaction in their children. And I think there's a difference. We should obviously love our children. We should love them, our children, the children of others. They are a gift and a blessing from the Lord. But here, David's enemies, whose portion, David says, is in this world, are satisfied in them. 
Now, I love my kids, but they can't satisfy my soul. Other times, they can do the opposite, you know. All you parents, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. No matter what it is in this earth, if it's not God himself, there's nothing here in this temporal world that, that can satisfy what we have or what we've been created for. Now, Psalm 127 does tell us that children are a heritage and a blessing from the Lord, but David here reminds us that God alone must be where we seek our truest and deepest satisfaction. Now, in these previous verses, we have already seen David appeal to God to be delivered spiritually into his presence in the midst of his terrible situation. Shelter me, God, in the shadow of your wings. But in the final verse here, David appeals to the truest and deepest longing of the human heart, which is this, beholding the face of God, or as it's often referred to, the beatific vision. This has been, friends, throughout the history of the church, especially reaching kind of its climax in the Middle Ages, and rightfully, I believe, based on verses like this, this beholding the face of God, being brought face to face with God himself, has been the climax and the deepest desire in everything that humanity has been created for. And we see a different vision between David and these, these other people, his enemies. Now, the things that they're finding satisfaction in are not bad things. Children are indeed a heritage and a gift from the Lord and should be loved and cherished. But only God is what we should seek after as our ultimate end and goal. Now, David, in essence then, looks forward to the resurrection and this is what I think David means when he says, when I awake, I will be satisfied in your likeness. I think like Isaiah uses at times and other people in the Old Testament, David here is speaking of waking not from the sleep that happens day in and day out, but from death in the resurrection life. David is a prophet, we are told by Peter as he preaches in Acts, and that he looked forward to the resurrection of Christ. As a matter of fact, that was just in Psalm 16. That was quoted in Peter's sermon. And here, picking up in the same idea, David longs for this time when he will behold God's face in righteousness and will be satisfied with his likeness. Friends, there is a day coming when our beloved Savior will return for his bride. There is a day coming when heaven and earth will collide as the new Jerusalem descends and the Savior brings with it all the glories of heaven. And all the brokenness of this world is swallowed up in the victory of Christ over sin, Satan, and death. There is a day coming when every tear will be wiped away. Death will be defeated permanently. And sorrow will be no more. Guys, creation will cease to groan with the pains of childbirth as the womb of the earth gives birth to the resurrection of the saints. The glories of this day are beyond anything that any of us could ever imagine. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Friends, this is what God has prepared for those who love them, love him. But at the very heart of all this, the very glory and joy of the new heavens and the new earth is the manifest presence of God himself. If you take that away from heaven, you're left with hell. 
See, at the heart of John's vision in Revelation 21 of the new Jerusalem is the thundering voice from the throne of God which says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Two times. He is emphatically clear that God will be with us. And this is the climax of the biblical story. Not that we simply avoid hell. And not even that we simply get heaven. But the glory of heaven and eternity is that we will come face to face with him for whom our soul was created. Wow, that was like right on time with my... I don't think that's me. Well, I feel like I should pray. <laughs> Let me finish with this. The glory of eternity and our blessed hope, friends, is none other than the presence of God himself in and among his people. David understood this reality. He built his life upon this reality. Let us.